It's Tuesday, April 25th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and Biden's back, baby. He never went away. He's looking for more at 84, which will be his age mid second term. But come on, we all know his age. and We all know the age in which we live, which is one where Donald Trump has the backing of 72% of Republicans. Biden's running and he's not kidding. It was a discussion at the kitchen table, not a joke. That was from a speech six days ago where he was serious. How in God's name are we letting this happen? I'm serious. Think about it. We did. We weren't allowed not to. It was a tune-up for today's speech, in which he was also serious. But here's my dad. He talked about, you know, everybody deserves to be treated with dignity, with self, recognizing their self-worth. And I mean it sincerely. Not, not, it's not a joke. This is something I feel in my gut, not just my heart my heart. And that speech in front of a union group included the crowd-pleasing riff where Joe Biden names a bunch of jobs. Iron workers, boilermakers, teamsters, laborers, bricklayers, masons, plumbers and pipe fitters, painters, plasters, roofers, operating engineers, steel and metal workers. Data analyst, influencers, which gets us all ramped up for the big announcement video take it away mr president that's why i'm running for re-election because i know america i know we're good and decent people i know we're still a country that believes in honesty respect and treating each other with dignity that we're a nation where we give hate no safe harbor we believe that everyone is equal that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country thank you for choosing us Every generation of Americans has faced a moment when they have to defend democracy. Stand up for our personal freedom. Stand up for the right to vote and our civil rights. I played that out loud, and one Peachfish executive was heard to say, does anyone believe that anymore? And I answered, well, it's a lot better than the American carnage bit. But hell yeah, they believe it. You can get people to believe anything. If you play the right inspirational background music... And that's why I am committed to always rescanning every item at CVS. I believe that when they replaced humans with robots that don't work all the time, CVS made a commitment to excellence. I believe that when I swipe, 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 and then place the purchase item on a table, and then I'm told that a purchased item on the table has not been recorded. Well, I, I believe that's on me. That's not on them. I love having three quarters of all items from Vaseline to ice cream locked up. And if no one can find the guy with the keys, well, that's progress. That's freedom. I could go on. I've got a list as long as the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, hell, a CVS receipt that says I love this place. God bless America and God bless 20% off your next purchase of $8 or more of General Mills cereal. Does not include Honey Nut Cheerios. On the show today, I spiel about the COVID crisis group, which has been kind of ignored, itself a crisis. But first, if I were to tell you about a website called cancer.news, you might assume, oh, it's got some news about cancer. No, it's trying to sell you apricot pits to cure cancer. Oh, we should disclose, they don't work. It's getting harder to discern which website is real, you know, without clicking into it and reading all the apricot pit information. So what if there were just a service to flag 
the phony from the possibly authentic. Our next guest, Stephen Brill, is one of the founders of NewsGuard, a company that gives trust ratings to websites and is actually turning a profit on that. Steve Brill up next. Stephen Brill is an entrepreneur and a journalist. He founded Court TV, Brill's content, or as I suppose they call it in the Brill's house, content. And now he has a new, well, somewhat new, innovative technology that addresses one of our great concerns. It is called NewsGuard. And what it does is, well, I'll bring in Steve Brill to explain, maybe as he would, uh, a potential investor. Hi, Steve. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What NewsGuard does is it it exists on the premise that every once in a while, uh, human intelligence is better than the artificial kind. And what we do is we employ now about uh, 40 journalists, experienced journalists. Um, my partner um, is Gordon Krovitz, who was the publisher of the Wall Street Journal. And as you know, I have a, I'm a decades-long uh, journalism background myself. And we read and provide ratings, uh, reliability ratings, for the thousands and thousands of, of news websites here and in Europe and in Australia and Canada. And the purpose of NewsGuard is not to opine on individual stories, but to provide a picture for people of the general reliability of whoever is trying to feed them the news in a Twitter feed or a Facebook post or a search or you know anything online. So for example, there's a big difference between cancer.org and cancer.news. Uh, cancer.org is the American Cancer Society's uh, uh, website. Cancer.news is a site that will try to sell you a subscription to apricot pits because apricot pits will cure your cancer. Oddly enough, it, it gets more engagement online than cancer.org. And it looks like cancer.org. It has calm language. It, it, it looks and feels like an authoritative site. Or uh, uh, we've identified in another sphere uh, 350 uh, sites uh, that are publishing uh, Russian propaganda, um, uh, mostly now about the Ukrainian war. For example, there's a site called Veterans Today which sounds like it's a site, you know, serving uh, veterans in the United States. It's a Russian propaganda site. So the goal of NewsGuard is not to block anything. It's not to be conservative or liberal. We, we give high ratings to conservative sites, to liberal sites. We give low ratings to conservative sites, um, liberal sites. It's really just to tell people something about the journalistic standards based on nine specific standards that we use. Um, the standards of all the news and information sites are typically responsible for 95 plus percent of all online engagement in the countries where we operate. Right. And some of your principles are you want to provide this information so that the government doesn't have to. I know that's important to you as a big believer in the First Amendment, and we could get into that more. But you also want to provide and have your professional journalist human beings provide the information so algorithms don't have to, right? Right. Well, indeed, algorithms now do in in most other cases. They're, they're basically 
of four entities that we know about that right now uh, uh, judge and provide ratings for the credibility of online news sources. Uh, there's Twitter. They have an algorithm they use that does that. Uh, there's Facebook and there's Google slash uh, YouTube. And then there's us. The difference with us is everything we do is totally transparent. We write and you can link to uh, for each of the sites, a two to 5,000 word nutrition label that explains how we applied the nine criteria. We call every one of these sites for comment before we say anything bad about them. Algorithms, last time I checked, don't call for comment. Um, every website knows about its rating. They can do something to change their rating. We want them to game our system. Algorithms always say, well, gee, if you knew how we judged you, you would game our system. Well, we like that. We want a website to decide to have a corrections policy. Right, because winning the game with you guys is things like disclosing who owns us and disclo disclosing who funds us. That's fine to win that game. Exactly. So that's why we started the company. The way I think about it and the way I thought about it when we started NewsGuard was uh, right now, if you walked into a library, you'd see you know thousands of books arranged you know, by subject matter, you could pick up the book and read the book jacket. You know who published it, you know who's financing it, you know who the author is. You can read something about the author. And best of all, there's a librarian who can tell you, well, this magazine or this book has a liberal perspective or a conservative perspective or, you know, published by the oil industry's uh, you know, trade association or it's published by Ralph Nader. On the other hand, imagine if you walked into a library and the only thing you saw with billions of single pieces of paper just flying around in the air. And you plucked one out of the air. You don't know who wrote it. You don't know who's financing it. You don't know what the credentials are of the people behind it. You don't know what their perspective is. You don't know anything. And that's the internet. That's your Facebook feed. That's your Twitter feed. That's your Bing search. That's every search. So what we've tried to do is restore some order to that by giving people that kind of information that they otherwise wouldn't have. So who is the customer? I'm sure you'd take anyone who wants to pay for the service, but is it the individual or the institution? Maybe the institution who doesn't want to rely on the Google or YouTube algorithm. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we do have individual uh, customers who have signed up for our browser extension uh, through Chrome or through Firefox. Microsoft has paid us a licensing fee to make our browser extension available to everyone who uses Edge. There are news aggregators that use us so that they can make decisions on which news sources they should aggregate and which ones they shouldn't aggregate. So if you're a news aggregator, there are websites that are coming to you all the time saying, you know, will you include me? And in a bunch of instances, uh, we have, uh, you know, clients who are major news aggregators who come to us and say, well, what about this site? And we say, well, it turns out that's a site that is financed by uh, the Iranian government and um, it publishes, uh, you know, propaganda from Iran. You may not want to be aggregating that or if you are going to aggregate, you should label it as such. So that's a business to business client. Um, we have ad agencies and advertisers and ad tech companies that use us to help make sure their clients aren't advertising on places where they don't want to uh, be advertising. Um, so it's a variety of business customers 
as well as um, uh, the individual customers using the browser extension. Do you find that it's the case that the public truly wants accurate information or do they say they want that and maybe say to themselves they want that, but the experience of how they act and what they click indicate they might not actually want that? I think it's a mix of both. I think a a lot of uh, the public wants to read what they want to read uh, that reinforces them. I mean, the example I use is that I'm a Yankees fan. And if the Yankees are winning a game, I'll watch the whole game. I'll watch every um, 11 o'clock newscast uh, describing the game. I'll read, you know, every newspaper story the next morning describing how wonderful the Yankees were. If the Yankees lose, I turn off the game in the seventh inning. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. Well, that's sort of okay as a baseball fan. But if you want to, you know, operate in a democracy, you don't really want people to have those habits when it comes to important news and information. But there are people who are that way. But we have found, and we've done some studies through Gallup and others, that people tend not to want to share news that has been, that they've been told is unreliable. Ah, because the bounce back effect on their reputation, I mean, they're sharing news for the human um, motivation of elevating themselves in the community with which they share it. If it turns out they're lying to you, they will be, their reputation will be diminished. That's exactly right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's the selfish version of being selfless. I like that. And there are also lots of people who really do want to know about the legitimacy of news. And that's going to become still more important with the, uh, the onslaught of, uh, you know, generative AI, you know, chatbots. Because we've done reports uh, demonstrating uh, that OpenAI's GBT-3 and 4 both will spout out um, all kinds of false narratives if you ask them to. I've played around with your rankings, and I find them good. And one criteria was just to take a couple of news organizations that always get bashed by the other side. I personally did not want to see the New York Post labeled as disinformation, right? To take one. I know that the New York Post sometimes, you know, they're a tabloid, they're tawdry. We know what their we know what their bent is, but especially with things like the Hunter Biden laptop, calling that disinformation, I think, is going overboard. And when the government, when Representative Dan Goldman describes that story as false and a lie, my um hackles get more raised than than otherwise would. I mean, I don't want the government calling that disinformation as opposed to a story whose framing we didn't like. And compliments to you. You don't call the New York Post disinformation. Well, as you know, we agree with you. In fact, the the only websites that we've dinged with regard to the uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story are some of the websites that said it was disinformation and then didn't issue, you know, any kind of a correction at all. But, uh, you know, the New York Post... Uh, you know, gets a credible rating from us. Just to orient my listeners, what are some websites, you talked about some of these outrageous outliers, what are some of the ones that are yellow or red in your rankings? And what are some that maybe even are controversial that get credible ratings, according to you guys? Well, the Daily Caller, I think, is controversial. It gets a highly credible rating from us. Um, the The Daily Cause, which is, you know, is a, or as you may know, is a website, uh, uh, basically run uh, by Democratic, uh, you know, activists, liberal activists, gets a very low rating. So, 
it's sort of counterintuitive because the, the, the natural instinct would be that, well, if they're a bunch of professional journalists and they're doing this, you know, journalists are left wing, so they're going to rate all the, the old, you know, reliable sites well and any newcomers or conservative sites or unconventional sites are going to get, you know, a negative rating. And it just doesn't work out that way. Now, there are plenty of conservative sites that we give a negative rating to because they just, you know, they make stuff up. Uh, you know, Gateway Pundit is one that comes to mind. They're a big one and they are, you're right, they just make things up. And they're not like the Daily Caller. They're not trying to, I'm not going to spend my time complimenting the Daily Caller, but it operates more or less like a news organization. They have sources. You put They put something in a quote, the person actually says it. We know where their funding comes from, you know, and uh, they do corrections, these sort of things. You know, if they're going to say something negative about someone, they call for comment. That's what, that, that's what reporters are supposed to do. So it's a, you know, it's a mixed bag, but what makes it all consistent is we apply the nine criteria consistently. And, you know, there really isn't a liberal or conservative way to have a corrections policy. If you make a mistake and you correct it, uh, that's what a professional journalism organization ought to do. That's what readers rely on a publisher to do so that they can depend on them and so that they can know that if, uh, you know, if the publisher makes a mistake and everybody makes mistakes, if the publisher makes a mistake, the publisher is going to be accountable for it and own up to it because that publisher has uh, professional standards. So I do want to talk about what are your thoughts on the government getting involved in the labeling of disinformation game? Because to some extent, we saw in recent elections, it's been proved that there was discernible efforts to affect the election with what you would label red uh, this is inaccurate news. This The origin of this is not who they say they are. There was disinformation in the U.S. media ecosystem. On the other hand, it is very tempting and maybe not even, maybe, maybe uh, subconscious, but it's so tempting to label information you don't want as disinformation. So to go back to my question, what do you think of the government getting into this game? I think if they, as a general matter, they really shouldn't get into it and we see ourselves as the alternative between the government uh, trying to control information and leaving all that control to uh, the Silicon Valley companies who do an awful job of it. They're, they're awful because, you know, they may be biased one way or another, but the most important thing is they're totally unaccountable, totally non-transparent. You have no idea what they're doing. You have no idea why they decide to you know, to promote something or not promote something. And if you ask them, they won't tell you. Um, so we're in the middle there. We're, uh, uh, we see ourselves as, as the third alternative, which is we don't block anything. We just provide our take on the reliability of it. And you can believe us or you can decide not to believe us. Um, if a publisher disagrees with us and complains about us, we always put their side of the story in the nutrition label too, so you can make up your own mind. Do big news outlets with a partisan bent, say Fox or MSNBC, do they want your green designation? Do they actively seek it? The higher the rating, the more uh, comfortable a lot of advertisers are with them. You know, MSNBC gets a lower, slightly lower rating. Uh, the website gets a slightly uh, lower rating than foxnews.com. Um, 
you know, it's interesting when you, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, healthcare, the, um, you know, the irony is, um, I don't know how much you know about my background, but because we have taken a sane position on healthcare, which is that the vaccine actually works and the measles vaccine actually works and you should get the vaccine. Um, you know, I've been accused of being the tool of uh, the drug companies. And as you may know, I wrote a very uh, prominent book, uh, which came out of a very prominent magazine article in Time Inc. in Time that took the drug companies apart. It's like basically calling Upton Sinclair in the pocket of big meat, calling you yeah. <laughs> healthcare. Well, that's me in healthcare, yes. Yeah, yeah. Core TV was successful for a lot of reasons, but it seemed to me to blend the high-minded and the selfish, which is that there was a good First Amendment case to be made that trials should be public, but there's also the purient interest of the viewer, right, who that drove a lot of ratings. For good or ill, I would say for good, I think you would too. Is, this, is a similar dynamic going on here that you could never convince the public to do this because it's good civic hygiene? It has to be tied in to the, say, selfish business interests of the advertisers? I think it's a mix of both. You know, um, and Court TV was a mix of both. And we, we had very high ratings uh, showing um, a war crimes tribunal at The Hague which actually we showed a couple of weeks before we started the O.J. Simpson case. Um, and what I've tried to do in my career is, is do both, which is have successful businesses um, that actually achieve some good in the world, too. Uh, you know, whether it was with the American Lawyer or uh, with Court TV, the only detour I really ever took from journalism was an idea that I got when I was writing a book about the aftermath of 9-11, and I started what's known as uh, the Clear Registered Traveler Program in airports. And I think that was a good business, but it was also a way to, you know, do some good in the world. Um, with NewsGuard, I think it's very much the same thing. I mean, we have a program where we, where we give our browser extension uh, for free uh, to, uh, to all the public libraries that want it. And we have over 900 now that are using it. You know, one of the the dirty little secrets in this country, as well as in Europe, where we operate, is that for a big chunk of the population, their access to broadband comes through the public library. Um, so I think, you know, you try to do both. Uh, you also try hard not to do any harm. But um, when it comes to, you know, the advertising aspect, the advertising business aspect of NewsGuard is a way to do both. Um, the fact that Microsoft... Um, and we hope others will uh, uh, make it available to people who use their platforms, uh, um, I think is a way of doing both. And how's it going in the years since you started, just from a business well, perspective? Well, we are, we are in the black. I mean, you said you think we may be successful. Well, you know, so far, uh, it's so good. And so, by the way, last question, since Core TV has become True TV, when you watch Impractical Jokers, what rating do you think NewsGuard would give them? Because they lie at first, but then reveal who they are. A, a zero rating. I mean, I am humiliated about, uh, you know, Court TV. You know, I sold it. I don't have a right to, you know, to criticize, you know, the people who've taken it over. But it is, it is kind of appalling. Stephen Brill is the founder of NewsGuard. Uh, it is among his many entrepreneurial efforts. It also dovetails with his journalistic background. And I thank you very much. Thank you. 
And now the spiel. The COVID crisis group issued its long germinating report, directed by Philip Zelico, who was the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. This was an assemblage of the top experts across ideologies simply suggested to be members of the panel in order to assess the country's response to COVID-19 and to advise on what to do about the next pandemic. This is, of course, unbelievably important, which is why we were all anticipating the issue of the report of the COVID crisis group. Wait, what's that? You weren't anticipating the issue of the report of the COVID crisis group, even though you might recognize a lot of the names of the 34 members. John M. Barry, historian, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning The Great Influenza. You probably read that book during the plague. And Nicholas Christakis from Yale and Peggy Hamburg, former FDA commissioner and New York City health commissioner and Zeke Emanuel and Mark Lipsitch of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. But did you even know they were all working together to generate this actually extremely important report? Well, if you didn't, it's not your fault. Don't blame your own preparedness. To quote Axios, the Biden administration didn't formally establish the panel and the bill to formalize the commission and report never made it out of the Senate. What is ironic, mm, I'm being generous, what's sad, is that the report is not only nonpartisan in nature, it wasn't partisan in conclusion. There was nothing about it that pointed a finger at one or another of the political parties. They even went so far as to say this idea of a red state response and a blue state response, it wasn't really real. It just feels that way because of a series of federal failures that created the political environment and the red-blue coding that has come to define our perceptions of COVID, how intermingled it was with politics. And it's no wonder why perceptions of the response were untethered to reality, because reality at the federal level was marked with a kind of clueless nonfeasance. Then again, it wasn't their job. Here's Zelikow from a presentation of the report's findings today. The United States has no national public health operational capability. Practically all the operational capabilities are state and local. That situation has not changed. The CDC was not ready to manage a national health emergency. It was never built to do that. It has neither the authority nor the readiness to play such a role. The state and local public health capabilities are anachronisms designed in another age and detached from the mainstream healthcare system that has far more knowledge and support. That'd be good to know. Say, if the president convened a commission and the Senate authorized it, like we did after 9-11, when it would have been politically unthinkable to pretend we didn't just experience a huge crisis, a huge trauma, and a huge problem from which, I don't know, no lessons could possibly be learned. But it's almost like America today does not think with the, I don't know, what word am I looking for? The responsibility or doesn't take ownership or isn't all about efficacy. Oh, wait, that's not the best word. Here, Zelikow tries out a couple alternatives. Perhaps the one big takeaway from the report in four syllables is preparedness. If four syllables is too many and you want to knock one off, competence. The thing is that an unprepared system can be made up of otherwise competent folks who were just caught off guard. That 
is what I hope happened in a way. I hope also that America regards its reaction to the COVID-19 crisis as something we don't want to happen again because we are a competent people who will work hard not to allow it to happen again. But the fact that there's so little appetite for assessment and reform makes me worried that we're not just an unprepared people, we're verging on the incompetent. I don't mean the experts, I don't mean the first responders and the doctors and the people who sacrificed during the crisis and worked with the, say, COVID crisis group after the crisis. None of them are incompetent. But if we don't realize it was a crisis and that it was handled not perfectly, quite imperfectly, maybe even poorly, and that it won't be handled better the next time, if we don't analyze all that, then yeah, we're incompetent. There were lessons to be gleaned from this group, the COVID crisis group, lessons that will be ignored because what should have been a high status endeavor was made a relatively obscure one. And no, I'm not a Cassandra who only draws negative lessons. Developing vaccines, that was an absolute scientific miracle. And I'm aware there is a cohort today who refuses to accept what successes we had and continue to have. But even the panel addressed the danger of downplaying urgency. Downplaying the problem to avoid panic does not duck the problem, and it does not avoid the panic. Replace panic with challenge, and we have an accurate description of the current situation. Right now, we are down to 1,160 COVID deaths a week. That's great. We're not in the middle of the crisis. We are, I think, coming out of a crisis. But one day, we'll be in that crisis again. History, science, and experts like the ones in the COVID crisis group, tell us that is necessarily so. Please, let's just do the work of a decently functioning society and competently prepare. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is head of philanthropy of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, Do Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>